Well, he felt like he was drowning. He couldn't keep his head above the water, and I was sitting there watching this moment happen. It was Jude this summer, actually, as we were teaching him to swim, and as Jude would swim, he would not put his butt up in the air, and so he would kind of just tread water with his little head just above the water, and his ears were below, and I could begin to see the panic on his little face as his eyes were closed and I could see that he was struggling and I was right there. I mean, literally inches away from Jude and I was saying to Jude, hey, I'm right here. Just reach out your hand. Hey, uh, uh, dad's close. Like, hey, just open your eyes to see me. Hey, I'm right here. And I could tell that he started to move faster and faster and faster. And then eventually he yelled out, help. And so what did I do? I didn't say, well, like figure it out. I reached out and grabbed him. And when I grabbed him, I I pulled him close and I, and I looked him in the eyes and I said, I will never, ever let something bad happen to you. But you need to remember that I'm always right here. I'm always this close. And you know, all that had to happen was all that you needed to do was just close the gap. He just needed to like reach out and close the gap. Like I was right there. My presence was right there. But the problem was because of the turmoil that he was in, in this moment of feeling like he was drowning, he didn't know how to reach out anymore. And so what happened is, is he, he, he suffered in this moment unnecessarily. And because he was in this moment of, of feeling like he was going to go under, he lost perspective of who I was and where I was. I mean, how many of us feel like that today a little bit? Maybe you're like walked into this room and you're like, in my life, I'm barely keeping my head above the water. Like I feel like I am suffering and I am struggling and I am trying so hard to tread water right now. And man, I just, I don't know if I can do this. And God is in this moment and it's like he is so far away. But the reality is he's right there and he's talking to you. But what is drowning you is blocking out the sound. And so the question that I have for us today is how do we close the gap? How do we close the gap between us and God? Because here's the reality. If our theology is correct, God's never not here. He's always near. He's always present. He's always just a handhold away. And so this morning, what I want us to go through as we continue on in our series on prayer and teaching us to pray is one verse in the Bible that we're going to look at really closely. Luke chapter 11, verse 2, where Jesus is talking to the disciples and the disciples look at Jesus and they're in this moment where they're like, hey, something incredible has happened. Listen to these verses. One day, starting in verse 1, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he had finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Verse 2, he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Now for a lot of us, we look at that and we go, man, like what's the big deal with that? That doesn't seem to be a really important thing. But here's the deal. The disciples of this time, they're, they're, they grew up in Judaism. It's not like prayer is a mystery to them. They grew up learning prayers. In fact, if they were good and, and orthodox, they would say a prayer every morning called the Shema. Starts in Exodus chapter 6, where they recognize that the Lord God is one and he is with them. And so prayer was not foreign to these men. 
but the way that Jesus prayed was. There was something so different about the way that Jesus prayed that they said, hey, we got to learn prayer like that. There's something different about what is going on here in, in your life. And so when we begin to pray, understand that the disciples are not ignorant. They're just seeing something different. They're seeing the way that Jesus prayed and goes, man, something is happening. Something powerful is happening in the way that Jesus prayed. And so as we jump into the text this morning, we're going to be looking at what the significance of these couple of words are in the Bible. In fact, these words in this way of praying is so profound that, that it, it's life-changing. In fact, I can write a whole message and, and leave stuff out on this verse. And so as we begin to talk about our prayer life, and we're in this 21 days of prayer and fasting, and we're learning to pray and take our prayer life deeper, I want to remind everyone, prayer, it, everyone has the opportunity for it. it. It doesn't mean you have to be theologically a stout. You don't have to be a professor. You don't have to have a doctor in front of your name. You don't have to be a Christian for a certain amount of time. In fact, you don't even really need to be a Christian. Anybody can pray. It creates equal access for all of us to God. And now there's things that can hinder that and there's things that can remove us from these moments. But the reality is, is God has given people the privilege and honor of praying. But I really believe that there's a secret in this Christian life to the power of prayer in our life. Right? It's not just something that we have to do. It's something that we get to do. And I think that these first couple verses of the Lord's Prayer set the pace. They set the pace for change. And so when you are beginning to pray and seeking God, a lot of us need to just take a second and remember who's there. Like, I don't know if you imagine this or build this up in your mind, but the very beginning of what Jesus says is, hey, if you want to pray like me, you got to remember who's there. You got to remember who's near and you have to remember what is going on. So when we begin to pray, this is what Jesus does in the very first three verses. He really does three things and Tyler Stanton picks up on this, but he says this, when we begin to pray, we need to remember who God is, remember who we are and remember who we are to one another. In this very beginning, in this very start of these verses is this idea of, this is who God is, this is who I am, and this is who we are towards one another. See, the reality is for so many of us is we have to start bringing perspective to our prayers, right? And when Jude was feeling like he was sinking, his perspective was changed. He forgot who was there. He forgot that my presence was there. He forgot that I was near and close, and he forgot that I would never let him drown. But because his perspective shifted and he forgot to remember who was there, he began in panic. He began to, to fight the battle on his own and he began to move away from God. Now, there's a little thing that happens here that is different for us culturally than it is for them in this time period when they were talking. And it's this little word that is name. Everyone say name. How many of us know the sweetest word in any language is a person's name? Name is really important because what was understood here, especially in the Old Testament, was that a name wasn't just a name. A name encapsulated everything that someone was. 
Every single aspect, every attribute, every thing of goodness, every single part of who someone was, was attached to and summed up in their name. And so what is going on in this verse? Jesus is saying, hey, you pray to the Father, and then what? Hallowed is your name. He's remembering right there the holiness of God. Look, here's the deal. God doesn't need you to tell him that he's holy. Some of us need to recognize that he is. God's not having an identity crisis in heaven and go, hey, could you just remind me who I am so I can start answering these prayers? No, God says, hey, let's start this way so you remember who's here. So you can remember who I am and in my name and how holy and good my name is will be a blessing to you. I don't need to be blessed with that. Listen to this commentator. The name in antiquity stood for far more than it does with us. It summed up the person's whole character. The whole character of a person, all that was known or revealed about him. The prayer comes from more than the way people take the name of God upon their lips, although that is included. It refers to all that God is and has revealed of himself and asks for a proper attitude in the face of this. Let me ask you, when you begin to pray, because we're in panic, because we're in crisis, do we forget, hallowed is your name? Do we remember who we're talking to? Do we remember and just think about and dwell in the presence and dwell in the fact of who it is and what his name represents? And it represents the fullness of who God is. Could that change the way that you pray this morning? Could that just, for just a minute, we all sit there, And just remember that when we say, hallowed is your name, holy is your name, glorious is your name, that when we say name, we include everything about who God is. And it's really not to bless him, it's to bless us. I was a couple years ago talking, um, I was in Europe, I was in England, and we took a bunch of our Liberty students to uh, Westminster Abbey. Really early in the morning, they were having communion. And so we were like, hey, we're going to go. They're Anglican. And so let's all like, let's go watch. Let's be a part of this. Let's, let's see what goes on here. So we got to Westminster Abbey at 730 in the morning. Now in this little side chapel, we found ourselves and I said, hey guys, like we're not Anglican. I want to be respectful of this uh, church and who they are. So like we're here to watch, but we may not necessarily participate. Okay, you can if you feel led, but I don't want to assume or presume that we're just good to take communion here. So we walk into this room and um, this Anglican priest walks up to me. He's like, hey, how are you? And I was like, oh, I'm doing great. How are you today? Hey, we're from Liberty University. We're here. We're studying about church history. And I thought it would be great for some of our students to see a traditional Anglican communion. Would you mind if we just sat in? He's like, no, not a problem. And I said, don't worry. Like, we don't want to offend you or anybody else, so we won't partake of communion. And he said, well, you believe in Jesus? I said, yeah. He said, so we're in the same family, right? Oh, yeah. So we all eat at the same table, the Lord's table. You can take communion. Yes, sir. So uh, I walked in, and uh, I was like, oh, he taught me something. I, I, sh- I almost fell out right there. I was like, oh, yes. All right. So what happened is we walk in, and there's two other people in the room. There's 30 of us, two people. I looked at everyone. I said, everyone eat up, buttercup. Like, we're going to participate in this moment. <laughs> 
So we go through it. It's really um, this beautiful moment of remembrance. And the priest brings you a cup and they had communion wine and they give you, you drink and then they give you food and you eat, but they like put it in your mouth. So it was a different experience for everybody. And then to show honor and respect, the priest then drinks the rest of the wine and eats the rest of the bread. So nothing is left. And so we're leaving and I just sat with him and I said, man, thank you so much. That was so God honoring and just a beautiful moment together. Thank you. And so we walk out of Westminster Abbey and I spent probably 20 minutes with this guy and we like vibed, we connected. And then our tour leader comes up to me and goes, you know who that is? And I was like, I have no idea who that is. She's like, he's the leader of the Anglican church. He receives confession from the queen. And I was like, I didn't know who I was talking to. <laughs> so then I look him up online and I was like, whoa. And she's like, do you know how incredible, one, like that he was there leading communion, but you got to connect with this person. And we may not agree on everything, of course, but I didn't know who I was talking to. So I talked to them and maybe not the way that I normally would. I would have had probably some different questions, right? Or some different things to talk about if I just knew who I was talking to. And I think for so many of us, we run into prayer because we're in a crisis or we're in a moment and we just don't take time to remember whose name it is we're praying in. And that maybe just the answer to your prayer is a character and attribute of who God is. And that would change everything for you. But here's the reality. I think when it comes to this and praying this way, we can make two really wrong directions. And I think balance in prayer is really important. But I think that we can take divergent tracks and we can begin to lose the heart of what's going on in this text. See, the first kind of wrong way that I think we can go is the one of reverence without any form of familiarity. See, the Jewish form of prayer at the time was one of complete reverence, but it was unknown in a distant God. Right? It was like knowing a person of honor and all of these things, but from a distance. Like, I know you and recognize you, but you don't know me. And man, I, you're unapproachable a little bit. And for the Jewish tradition, for a lot of them, this was a feeling that they had. In fact, never in prayer specifically is God referred to as father in the Old Testament. Only when he's talked about as the father of the nation is he referred to that way. So this is kind of crazy. And I don't think that in our culture right now, that's what we struggle with. Because I think we have a hard time honoring and giving any kind of reverence to anybody in our culture right now. And so I don't think a lot of us have this idea that, man, God is out there and God is so far away and man, I can't talk to you. And some of us are laying on our face weeping because we're scared. No, I think we actually lack reverence in our current culture. But here's where we, mo most of us err in our current culture. And it's one of familiarity without reverence. A lot of us talk to God. A lot of us do things with God the way that we talk to just somebody. But when you're familiar with people and you don't have reverence or respect for them, you hold them at a lower level. See, what happens is, is that like your prayers aren't about like, Lord, I'm here to serve you. What your prayers become is, hey, you're here to serve me. And what happens for a lot of us in our prayer life is we kind of can go one of two directions. We can go high reverence, no familiarity, and then we can go really familiar and no reverence. So you're like, I don't understand how that works. Anyone have parents in here? Did you talk to your parents with familiarity or reverence? 
This generation talks with a lot of familiarity and no reverence. It's dishonoring. It's not accurate. It doesn't see the way that it should. My parents are in the room. I'm sorry, mom and dad. I should have talked to you differently a lot. But I talk to you with familiarity and not reverence. We need to find the middle ground of what is going on. So I'm going to tell you guys a story about a man who really changed my life a couple years ago. And I'm going to use him as this analogy throughout the whole morning for us to understand something. So Naomi, can you put up the first picture? This is Dr. Elmer Towns. Dr. Elmer Towns, he's speaking at the 50th anniversary of Liberty University. Now, many of you may not know who he is. Dr. Towns was the co-founder of Liberty University. Can I just read you his resume real quick? Let me just read you his resume. He co-founded Liberty University, the largest evangelical university in the world, which currently enrolls 115,000 students this semester. 115,000 students are currently right now at Liberty enrolled in a school that he co-founded. Not only that, Dr. Towns has given theological lectures and taught intensive seminars at over 111 theological seminaries and colleges in America and abroad. He's taught at 111. He holds visiting professorship rank at five seminaries in the world. He's written over 2,000 reference articles and popular articles and received six honorary doctoral degrees. He is, according to the Library of Congress, the author of 200 books. He is listed as one of the eight most popular. Eight of his books are best-selling Christian books. And in 1995, he received the Gold Medallion Award, awarded to Christian Booksellers Association by writing the book of the year. He's also 90 years old this year. He's still alive. I talk to him every once in a while. And he also won a bronze telly award. It's a lot of reverence. I had the opportunity when I went to Liberty University and started to go to seminary to work for him. I worked hand in hand, side by side with Dr. Towns for five years. For five years, I worked with him on classes. I traveled with him around the country. I had the opportunity to meet some incredible people and be in rooms that I never should have been in. And before I got to know Dr. Towns, I felt like because of that resume, he was unapproachable. I felt like there was this huge distance between who he is and who I am. And when I began to work for him, it was awkward. Has anyone been in a room with someone that you're just like, we're miles apart? And I remember in, uh, working for him, and this is who the guy was, and I knew all of these things about him. In fact, he is preaching right there at Liberty, giving the very first speech that he gave to students 50 years earlier. Talked about vision and remembrance. But let me show you a second picture. That is the Dr. Towns that I now am familiar with. This was taken uh, four years ago. That's Jude the Dude. Um, I went back to Liberty to visit. Kelsey came with me with Jude. And so we ate at this place called the Coffee Cup. Coffee spelled with a K. Okay? K-O-F-F-E-E. -E. It's a little old country coffee shop that 
a lot of nobodies go to, but somebody was there. And we had breakfast with Dr. Towns. And we started to talk about the church plant. And we started to talk about Jude and all that was going on. Those are very different pictures and very different relationships. Because one was an image of reverence of, of this moment where we're like, man, you're up there. You're on this stage in that room. There are 14,000 people that he's speaking to. And then there's these moments where it's like I'm sitting having coffee and eating biscuits and gravy with Elmer Towns. And what began to happen is how do you get from like where he's up there and then you're over here and then to this moment where he's holding your son for a picture while you're visiting that you don't even work for anymore. See, this is how... I know Dr. Towns, he became a friend. He became a personal mentor. He's still someone that I call about things going on in here sometimes that I'm like, hey, you're 90. Can you help me? Like, I don't know what to do in this situation. He's like, oh, Blake. That's why he talks, oh, Blake, have faith. Let me tell you about one time at Liberty when this happened. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, right? <laughs> See, because what happened is in the very first part is a question that a lot of us deal with. Do you really see me? When I began to work for Dr. Towns, I really didn't see him. I saw his accolades. I saw his accomplishments. I saw where we got to live and, and like he had a house on the mountain, like all of these. I saw that, but I didn't really know who he was. See, in reverence, we see a person's accomplishments and character. Right? We see a part of that. We see a portion of who a person is. And let me just tell you something. Of all the famous people that you want to meet, and all these people who are heroes to you, at the end of the day, they're people. Right? Every time we would travel, his wife would be like, make sure he eats well. And I'd be like, okay, Ruth. And then we'd get there, and he's like, I'm skipping dinner and having a peach milkshake. And I'd be like, okay. I'm gonna do, what am I going to hit it out of your hand? Like, okay, yep. How did he eat? He ate, okay? That's all I say. <laughs> but the reality is, is when we have reverence for who God is, but we do not know him personally, we don't know him with familiarity, then everything becomes ritualistic. It becomes just a ritual. It becomes this part of our life where we don't really feel familiarity with someone, and so it's just a ritual. And a lot of people have left church and left the faith because, man, it just turned into a ritual. It's not this personal thing. It's not this part of, of us being together. And so what I realized is, is I didn't really see Dr. Towns. Because I had so much reverence for him, I didn't really know who he was. And so I remember there is this moment where we had this time where we were coming together and Dr. Towns, I walked into this office and there is people in there that I, sh I was like, why am I in this room? And everything that, that I dealt with with Dr. Towns in that time was one of like, hey, can you change the slide here? Yes, sir. Oh, okay, no problem, sir. Right? Or like, it'd be like, yep, out of here. And I'd leave the office. I would, you know, do this idea because I thought, man, I, I, I work for you. I definitely don't work with you. I wonder for how many of us we feel this way, especially when it comes to our prayer life. 
Now, it may not be something that a lot of us deal with in here because we live in a culture without reverence now. But the reality is, is some of us feel so far from God because, man, he's way up there. He's doing all these things, and I really can't approach him. He's just too far from me. He's too different than me. And, man, so when I pray, it is so formal, and it is so ritualistic, and there's no almost feeling our heart behind it because, man, I just, I'm giving you what I have and all I have is ritual because I don't feel like I can know you. Now, the other side is not only do you see me, but do you believe? So some of us see parts of who God is, but there's not this familiar relationship. But the other part of it is, is we don't believe in the power of people. We don't see the power of God because, man, everything's so familiar. I mean, have any of you ever been in a room when you got older that you walk into with your parents or your grandparents or someone who had accomplished something in life and people treat your parent or grandparent a lot differently than you do? Because they have reverence but not familiarity, but you have familiarity but no reverence. There was this moment where I was in college and um, we were at a big conference. And there was big speakers there, Andy Stanley, John Maxwell, all of these guys. And so Dr. Towns was one of the speakers, and he's like, hey, um, let's go back to the green room. And I'm like, I think that's a place where you belong. It's definitely not a place that I belong. And he's like, oh, just walk in like you own the place. Walk in right behind me. We'll be fine. <laughs> I was like, okay. The problem was is my relationship with Dr. Towns, I had gotten to know not the co-founder of Liberty University, I had gotten to know an old man. And as I was leading into a, a moment of, of being in college and doing all of these things, I began to lose reverence for him because I became really familiar with him. And it's like when he didn't know how to send an email, I got real prideful because I did. And what began to happen is, is as our relationship grew in an unhealthy direction, I lost reverence for him. He was just a guy. Just that had, had done a lot of things, but now, man, who knows what. And so we walk into this room, and I walk in. I'm like, hey, all right, I'm here. There's food everywhere, all this stuff. And I walk in, and I look, and sitting there is Andy Stanley, who's pastor of one of the largest churches in America, probably one of the most influential leaders in America today, especially in Christianity. And then next to him is John Maxwell. Okay? So I walk in and I'm like, oh, yeah, I got nervous. You know, you're like, oh, okay, just keep your mouth shut. Don't look these guys in the eye. As soon as we walked in, and here I am with Dr. Towns who can't send an email, okay? And as soon as we walked into the room, Andy Stanley and John Maxwell stood up and they said, I can't believe Dr. Towns is here. And I was like, what? The dude can't send an email. And I was like, oh, man, okay. And then Andy Stanley and John, they're like, come, Dr. Towns, come sit down. Please, come sit down. So they sit him at the head of this table, and there's Andy Stanley, and there's John Maxwell. And out of the mouth of Andy Stanley, he says, I can't believe I'm sitting here with Dr. Towns. I can't believe I'm in a room sitting here with Dr. Towns. Do you know how much you influenced my prayer life? Do you know how much you've influenced my leadership that I've watched you from afar with great admiration? I can't believe I'm sitting in the room with Elmer Towns. 
And Dr. Towns was just kind and gracious. And he's like, Andy, I've been following you. You're doing great. Keep up the great work. And I'm like, you don't need to tell him that. He's doing great. But like, <laughs> but he does. And then John Maxwell talks about this time that he was at a conference and Dr. Towns was there. And John Maxwell wanted to learn from Dr. Towns. And Dr. Towns said, all right, well, I'm heading on a bus from here to here. If you can make it on the bus before we leave, you can sit next to me and talk to me on the ride. And John Maxwell, as a young man, 19 years old, sat next to Elmer Towns. He said he ran. He just took whatever clothes he could and held them and ran to the bus and got in the bus. And I looked at these two people that I had so much reverence for. And then this man who I had lost reverence for but only had familiarity with now. And I watched them have reverence for him. And I realized that somewhere along the way, I had lost the heart of this. That my familiarity had stolen from me the privilege of being around him. To watch his life. And I wonder for how many of us, our familiarity with God or part of God has caused us to lose reverence for God. And so it's not really an honor who you're praying to. It's not really an honor who you're talking to this morning. It's not really reverence. It's like, can you do this? Right, because I never walked into John Maxwell or Andy Stanley when I got in there and said, hey, get boys, could you, why don't you get me a drink? I'm thirsty up in here. I didn't walk up and say, Andy, give me a drink. I didn't do that. Why? Because I had reverence for those people. And I realized in part of the way that I was dealing with this, I, I talked to Dr. Towns that way. He'd be like, can you do this? And I'd be like, yeah. And I knew that I wasn't going to do it because I knew better. I wonder for how many of us, that's our prayer life with God. And we wonder why there's no power in prayer in our life because we treat God like a servant. And we walk in and say, hey, my bank account's real low. Can you fill it up? Hey, I'm not feeling so great. Heal me up. Hey, I'm thirsty. Can you get me a drink? I think for so many of us, we lose the power in the, the idea of prayer because, man, we've become so familiar with who God is that we've forgotten who God is. And so as we look at these moments, the disciples, like in this time, had all of these ideas. Familiarity can not only lead us to this moment where we're comfortable, but where we're rude, Listen to what one commentator says. These disciples knew a God of cleansing rituals and animal sacrifices and a God of 10 plagues and of blood on the doorpost, a God who parts seas and floods the earth, a God with a heavy hand of deliverance and a heavy hand of judgment, awesome in the power, awesome in power, but hard to get to know. Jesus, Jesus did nothing to diminish reverence, nothing to minimize the power of God. He made God knowable. I think for so many of us, when we get real familiar with who God is, or at least who we think he is, we start to diminish his power and his ability and all of these things. And you wonder why when you pray, you don't pray in faith. Because we've taken God and we've elevated ourselves above him. You know, so I didn't do that. Well, watch how you speak to him. And we've put him here and we say, hey, you're here to give me my best life now. And God says, I certainly want your best life now. So we're going to need to reverse roles. 
We're gonna, I'm going to need to make sure that I lead you and do all of these things. And so what happens is, the question is, is not only do you see who God is, but do you believe in what he can do? Do you believe in the power of who God is? Do you believe in this moment? Can you and I hold intention, this beautiful moment where we can believe in the power of God and yet be near to God? That we can really see him for all of his attributes and who he is, but not diminish that when we come close and familiar with God. Because here's the deal. I want you to see how this plays out in the Bible. We're going to go to the, one of the first stories in the Bible. Because if you don't reach out, if you don't close the gap, you will drown. You'll drown, just like Jude. Just like Jude. If you don't reach out, if you don't call out, if you don't know the power of the person who you're talking to, you don't know the nearness of that person, and you're not familial enough to, to ask for something, then you'll drown. And some of us in this room are waiting for God to rescue us and God is waiting for you to speak to him. Waiting for you to talk to him. Waiting for you to reach out because the reality is he's right there. So let's go to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. There's this thing that happens where we see a fallout. We see an issue. Genesis chapter two, verse 16. This is God's command to Adam. It says this, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now this comes up and it's like, well, like, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? Well, the story goes a little bit different. Genesis chapter three, starting in verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Anybody notice different language there? What did he do? Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? What does that begin to do? It diminishes God. It makes you feel like, no, he just said, don't eat of this tree. Right, But this sowing of doubt began to enter her mind. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat the tree, eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. Notice she's starting to add some descriptions. And you must not touch it. Oh, there's a little addition. You must not touch it or you will die. This is what the serpent says. You will not certainly die. I'm going to bring God into a familial level. He's not perfect. He's not all-knowing. In fact, he's deceiving you. He's diminishing you. So he's around. He's just not that great. And look what happens. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You notice what the enemy did? He didn't put the fruit in her mouth. He didn't say, like, eat this apple. But he deceived her enough. He manipulated her enough to lower the reverence of who God is because God wants to trick you. So now his reverence goes down. And to make it so familial, you'll be like him. You guys will be equal. And what happened in that moment? 
the power of God in her life was diminished because she was deceived into those two things. She lost reverence and she went too familiar that the familiarity was one where we're equal. And that's what she wanted. And so what happens? We all know the story, hopefully. She eats. It's like, Adam, come on over here. This fruit's good. They eat. And then what? It gets a little bad. They hear what is going on. Their eyes are open to their nakedness. They cover themselves. And then God comes into the garden calling for them. The close relationship that they once had is gone. And now they're hiding from their Savior. They're hiding from God in the trees. All because of what? The enemy was allowed in that moment and worked her mind over to the point where what? God's not so great and you can be just like him. That's what I did with Dr. Towns. When I treated Dr. Towns and he would tell me like, hey, can you change this? And I'd be like, nah, because I thought we were equal. We were too familial. And so what happens for so many of us is exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. They lost reverence and they got too familiar with God where they became co-equal and they drowned. They had fallout. They forgot the nearness of God. They forgot the closeness of who he was in the relationship that they had with him. And when that happened, it had dire consequences on the choices that they made in the way that they lived their life. Have you lost reverence? And do you have too much familiarity with God? That your familiarity is, well, we're the same. And so can you just do what's best in my mind? Can you do exactly what I ask? And you know what? Do it the way that I ask. And if you could do it faster than I ask, that'd be great. That's not the prayer that Jesus has. That's not the way that he speaks to God. That's not the way that things go on. Look at what happened in these verses. Eve disparaged the privileges the privilege of being in relationship with God, the privilege of of knowing him and speaking to him. She disparaged it because she was deceived. Not only that, she added to the prohibition. You can't touch that tree. Why, Why? When you can add more than what the Bible says, then that's you taking the role of God. Right? When we, I like this book, but there aren't pages in the back that says, write whatever you want. Like use this as a good foundation and then add away or take away. That's exactly what she did. Oh, yeah, well, you can't do that, and we can't touch it. And then she made her own prohibition. So when she touched a fruit and certainly did not die, she thought, oh, we're good. We're all good, right? I didn't die. And it's like, well, God didn't say that. But when you eat, we're going to have a problem. So what happens here is she adds prohibition and weakens the penalty. All seen by contrasting the words of Genesis 3.3 and Genesis 2.16 with God's original commands. She just begins to twist it and the enemy begins to twist it. And notice he didn't say, you better eat. You have to eat. You must eat. Here's a slice. Let me put it in your mouth. Let me chew your jaw for you. Now I'm going to hold your nose and tilt your head back. Oh, you ate it. See? And how many of us look towards the, like God and we wonder why the bad things happen to us? And why did you make me do this? God's like, I haven't made anybody do anything. You got to take some responsibility here. The problem is we had too much reverence or too much familiarity and you got into a problem. Now, the beautiful thing about Genesis chapter three is Genesis 315. Does anyone know that verse? It says this. 
And God entered the garden. He looks at the serpent and he looks at the woman. And he says, I will put enmity between you, your offspring, and his offspring. And you will bruise his heel, but her offspring will crush your head. This is a word that we call the proto-euangelion, the pre-gospel. What God promises is, is where Adam and Eve failed, where we all fail, our Savior's coming into the place. And he's going to come in, and what you tried to mess up, I'm going to redeem. I am going to rescue, and I will crush you in the process. And so what happens for so many of us, it tempts Eve. His strategy is what? Did God really say you must not eat from the tree? It's interesting to note that at no point does the serpent's temptation become direct. He never says, here's the fruit or anything of the sort. Instead, the serpent takes aim at Eve's belief in the character of God. And man, have you looked around our culture right now in the aims at the character of God? He's not so great. Look around. He's not so awesome and powerful. Look around. He's not doing all these things. Look around. It's, guys, it's the same playbook. Why? Because it works. And prayer is a place for you and I to hear from the heart of God again, to be renewed in our strength and our understanding of who he is and how he acts and all of these things in that when the doubt comes in, we can pray to him and do what? Hallowed is your name. Everything about who you are is in your name and it is holy and good and glorious. And some of us are wondering, like, why don't my prayers have power in this life? Because you don't know who you're talking to anymore. You've forgotten. You've forgotten that he is infinitely wise and infinitely good and he does things beyond comprehension. And so for some of us in here, we need to move from reverence to relationship. That's exactly what happens in chapter 11, verse two of the gospel of Luke. We see what Jesus does is he goes, hey, I'm gonna take you from unhealthy reverence to healthy relationship. Jesus is saying to them like, look, I want to give you how this actually happens. And it happens in the very first word of the prayer. Has anyone noticed that I haven't talked about the word father? Father, this is an Aramaic word. You guys have probably heard it. There's a band named after it, Abba. (laughs) Abba, Aramaic, for a word used for intimate relationship with your dad. Not your, you know, like it's not to diminish what goes on in the, the power of that moment. What it is meant to do it's changed the way that we talk. It's meant to go, hey, you're my dad, reverence, awesome, power, all of these things, but you're also my dad, you're close. And so the secret to all of this is not just reverence and it's not just familiarity, it is relationship. And that's what the disciples were so profoundly changed by in that moment. It is like, you talk to God like you know him and he knows you. But you uphold his character. You uphold everything that he is by hallowed is your name. But you talk to him like a son. Like, can you teach us how to pray like that? Can you teach us how to do this? That he can be God of the universe and our heavenly father all in the same moment. And we are near him, but we experience his power and see his power and we pray in faith. 
That's the key to these very first verse of the Lord's Prayer. It is so powerful and so earth-shaking that it changes the way that we pray and we live. Because God's word is where God speaks to us. Prayer is where we get to speak to him. Prayer is this moment where God can speak to us in a moment and his word can speak to us in a moment. But prayer is where we get to talk to him. We get to talk to the creator of the universe who's also our heavenly father. And this changes everything. See, because when you go from reverence or familiarity into relationship, it changes the way that you talk to him. Why? Because I believe you can do something. I believe in your goodness, in your kindness, in your love towards me, and I also see your power and ability. And so I'm going to believe and have faith in this moment that you can do this. And that's when we can pray things like, your kingdom come. Why? Not my will be done, but your will be done. Your kingdom come. Why? Because I know that you love me. I know that you're near me. I know that you're close to me. I am your son, I am your daughter, and you adopted me in all of these things. Even I was so far away from you, and yet you have the power over sin and death. You spoke all of this into existence. You uphold it by your mere thought. This is not a struggle for you. You know all things. You can do all things, and I get to stand with you. And so not my will be done but yours because your will is better and I know that you love me. And so help me to accept this. Do you see how your prayer life can start to become not about changing the mind of God but forming your heart to the mind of God? It can begin to do all of these things. See, here's what happened for us. My relationship with Dr. Towns went like this. Went from reverence. I couldn't really... Uh, like he was unapproachable. And then I went to familiarity where I lost respect. And then somewhere in that town's conversation with Stanley and Maxwell, my eyes were open too. I get to be really near this guy and this guy is really influential. This guy's really powerful and yet he's so kind and he's so gracious to me. You know what he said when we walked out of that meeting? He said, Blake, I want to tell you something. That's how I talked. I want to tell you something. Flattery is like perfume. I was like, where's this going? (laughs) And he goes, if you take just a small whiff, it's pleasant. If you take a big breath, you'll get sick. As these two big Christian leaders were like fanboying over Dr. Towns, he walked out and said, hey, don't smell the perfume. And in that moment, it's like, Reverence and familiarity met because I saw who he was, but I also saw how he lived and how much he loved people. Do you know how loving it is to think about me as we walk out of that meeting about witnessing what just happened and saying, I need to prepare you for the moments that are coming in your life. So here's the deal. Even if the biggest Christian influencers in the world fanboy you, it doesn't mean anything. Do you know how loving that is towards me to share that moment with me? to humble himself in that moment. He could have walked up and been like, did you see that? That was awesome. And so what happened a few years later is this is what relationship does for you. 
I was, Kelsey and I had just sold or, or stopped renting an apartment, like a townhouse, and we had bought a house. We were, had 10 days between the two. Anyone ever been there, right? You're like ending one thing and trying to get into the other, but you got like this 10 day of I'm homeless for 10 days. And we had Piper and Tatum. And, um, or no, it was just Piper at this time. Kelsey was pregnant with Tatum. And um, I walked into his office one day and he's like, Blake, are you doing okay, my man? Are you like, what's going on? And I was like, to be honest, Dr. Towns, I'm a little stressed out. And he's like, what's bothering you? I said, I'm going to be homeless for 10 days, basically, with uh, a one-year-old and a wife who's like six months pregnant. I'm stressed. And he goes, no, you're not. And I was like, yeah, no, there's 10 days I don't have anywhere to live. He goes, no, I have an extra house. See, because when he bought the house on the mountain that Liberty built for him, the deal was is that if he passed away before his wife passed away, that had to become like a conference center. So she had to leave. So he bought her another home, a townhouse on a golf course. And so he bought that. And he goes, Mike, no one's living there but you. And I was like, I, well, I didn't even ask, could I? He's like, yeah, you didn't need to. And then we got there and we slept in the basement because the air conditionings weren't working because the house just sits like vacant. Summer in Lynchburg, which is super hot. And the first night I walked in, I probably looked like I'd been in a sauna for six weeks. And he's like, Blake, are you okay? How's the house? And I said, it's awesome. It's really good. He goes, what's wrong? And I said, nothing. And he said, no, something's wrong. And I said, just you know, we got fans. It's totally cool. We're totally appreciative. But the ACs aren't working. He said, what? And I said, yeah, the ACs aren't working. He said, your wife is pregnant. And I was like, oh, she is? No, I was like, oh. And he goes, oh, hold on. Gets on his phone, calls the head of maintenance at Liberty University. Okay, this guy's got a big job. The campus at Liberty's 8,000 acres. Calls him. Of course, when Elmer calls, you answer, yes. Bill? He's like, yes. I have a problem. The air conditioners at my townhouse are not working. Now, granted, this is not attached to Liberty. <laughs> and he goes, Bill, you got to go fix them today. There's a woman that's pregnant with a baby there. It needs to be done. They replaced three air conditioners in that building within like six hours. <laughs> because we were in relationship. Not just familiarity, not just reverence. Because we were in relationship, I didn't even need to ask. I just needed to respond and to be okay with that moment and to believe in his provision. See, when we really see God as Father, but hallowed is his name, you find the secret to your relationship with God and the power of prayer because you're praying according to who he is, but you're believing because of who he is. And for you and I, when you begin to pray and seek God, we generally take one of the two when the secret is in the middle. Here's the deal. It's like grabbing his hand when you're drowning. And so what we call this is adoration. Cody's getting ready to come up. But adoration is this moment where you and I walk in to our prayer life. And before we begin to just get it all out, which God already knows in your heart, 
we just stop for a second and remember who's there. You're good. You are kind. You are loving. You are gracious. You are just. You see all things. You know all things. You, you only, like, in my life wants what is good for me, even when I don't see the good for me, even when I don't know the good for me. You are there, and you are doing it. And so because of who you are, because of your power, and because I am a son, I am going to ask in faith now. And I'm going to trust you with whatever you bring. Because you're my dad and who's in heaven who can do all things. And I know according to your word that you will not only meet our needs, you will do more. And the asking part is more for us than it is for him. The adoration part is not God going, that's right, I am awesome. The adoration part is, I'm glad that you see and know and believe and trust in who's right here. I told you this one verse would change everything. It's one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. Adoration is what God is owed, but it is what we need. God doesn't need us to recognize him to be okay. But when we recognize him, we are okay. We're okay. And so I know that in this room, there's some pressing matters and there's some really bad diagnosis and the bank account is running low and you just got that call from the doctor or it's coming up this week. I know that you've been praying for that kid that's far away from the Lord. I know, I know, I know. I know you're praying against that church hurt. I know that you're praying against that past life where people hurt you so bad. I know, I know that you're facing some mountains that seem insurmountable. but you are a son or daughter in here if you've believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that he'll carry you and he'll guide you and he'll direct you and we just need to have faith because prayer is about faith.